This is episode 15 of The Transport. Cover me, shoot to kill. The Transport by Alex Ames You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Chapter 49 Charles Charles had his hands full keeping the glider on course and keeping his distance from his peers. They had not made a turn yet. The plane was to bring them up three miles altitude, then make a generous 180 degrees turn, continue to climb up to six miles and then advance into the zone. The higher they got, the better was their chance to glide closer to veracity even when the plane got grounded. The altimeter climbed continuously for a seemingly endless time. Charles made some careful steering maneuvers to learn about his glider, always conscious of his air neighbors. The squadron was spread out widely and Charles could make out the two gliders next to him. The turn came gently but still as a surprise. Charles experienced the pull change on his glider but thought he had made a mistake in steering. But when his correction brought no result and the nylon wire's pull got stronger and stronger, he noticed the 15,000 feet marker on his altimeter and started to follow the turn. By that time he had already come dangerously close to Morales, who did her best to avoid the newbie. Charles' heart did a brief double take, but then he got the knack of it and followed the swarm of silent gliders. The temperature reached well below freezing. The more they approached maximum altitude, breathing became harder and Charles activated the oxygen breather. With the thinner air, the glider became more sluggish to navigate. The moonlight illuminated the desert below them, a chaotic jumble of dark grey shapes and lines, no concrete features whatsoever, only shadowy shapes. There were no indicators, no way markers, when the airborne trek over the affected outage zone started. Just the hypnotic, regular blink of the plane's red taillight. The only physical reminder of time was the self-illuminating clock, fastened to the control triangle that read the local time. The estimated flying time was about one hour, with plane pulling and two hours on glide. So far, the plane showed no problem keeping itself up in the air, the effect had to be something limited to electronic communication at the moment. Or they were too high for the outage to be activated. 30 minutes into the flight, the taillight suddenly vanished. Charles first thought that something blocked his view, but then he realized that the plane, specialized to maintain a relatively low towing speed, the gentle hum of the single propeller motor was gone. The dark shape was sinking away from view the towing lines already pointing at a downward angle. They were on their own, 
With a decisive pull, Charles disconnected his tow line and the black lifeline vanished into the darkness. Then he remembered who now had the navigational lead and looked out for Morales' glider markings. Panic! He saw no other gliders, not even the tow plane that had vanished in the darkness. Where the hell? Have another look around, Norman. Breathe in. You have a doctorate. You are a super spy. Nothing impossible here. First, let's heed our instructor's advice. Keep the glider up in the air. Speed too fast. Level out more. Good and steady. Course 320. Almost there. Good now. Now, where is the crew? They can't have crashed all at once. They must be in the vicinity. They're either left or right, nor below, nor ahead, nor behind. That leaves up. They must be above me, and my view is blocked by the glider sail. Charles decided to push his steering frame forward to trade altitude with speed for a few moments. And Eureka, the leading glider of Lieutenant Morales, showed up, quickly followed by the flanking gliders. It had been only him who lost height after the plane had stopped working. For the next endless 90 minutes, Charles tailed the leader. The cold that had been getting deeper and deeper into his bones at the high altitude was replaced by warmer air, unfreezing his limbs slowly. More contours of the ground came into view. And then, like a mirage, there was a shimmering yellow sphere on the horizon, straight on the 320 degrees course. A glance at the clock confirmed This had to be veracity. They had no idea where the object was at this point, but veracity was the closest point for logistics. Food, people, and whatever form of transportation, whether it was cars, bicycles, or a bloody horse after all. A black band below them, a road. Morales would pick it as their landing spot, Charles was certain. The altitude was now below 300 yards, the ground rushing past, giving Charles a first indication of their real speed. The first lighted individual houses could be made out, some neon signs from shops in the distance. But no streetlights and no cars on the road. The first indication that something was wrong in veracity too. He concentrated on his landing approach. Fingers, still stiff from the cold, made it difficult to untangle himself from the thermo bag. Morales already had touched down a few moments ago, some of his team too. Charles, still fighting with harness and bag, overshot and had to do a 180-degree turn that brought him dangerously close to some power lines whose shadows were clearly visible in the dim moonlight. He dove underneath them, picking up more speed than he liked. At 20 feet, he noticed that he had no time left to unbag himself anymore. It's not the landing that kills you, only altitude. Would he be able to land with legs still wrapped in the thermobag? Only one way to find out. As instructed during the training, he steadied the glider until the lack of speed ate up altitude and he began to sink lower and lower. The last two yards above ground, Charles gave it a last attempt to unwrap himself to no avail. The glider steering frame held two small plastic wheels meant to position the glider on the ground before running to take off. Now they touched the asphalt first while Charles did his utmost to keep his point of gravity on the tail end to avoid a repeat of his training nose crash. It worked. 
Slowly, his tail settled lower and lower, his bagged legs scratched the asphalt and stopped the glider for good quickly. I am alive, alive in veracity. I made it. Being killed by a bunch of alien spaceship abductor is still a likely outcome today. Or by Uncle Sam's own atomic bomb. But up to here, I made it. He let himself hang in his harness, pulled up his arms into the thermo bag too. He trembled all over from cold, from exhaustion, from adrenaline, from fear. Doc, are you all right? Morales came running. Are you kidding? Charles said, still unmoving in his bag, like a fat butterfly cocooning in a tree. I feel like a chicken straight out of the deep freeze. Spy man makes jokes. Spy man is all right, Morales deducted brought out a huge knife and cut the harness's nylon ropes with two quick slashes, and Charles unceremoniously fell to the ground. He unwrapped himself, shed gloves, face mask and overall, and was back in his fatigues. The night was hot and warmth slowly permeated his skin. Don't forget your guns, doctor, Morales pointed out, and Charles collected his equipment from the side pouches of the thermal bag. A machine pistol with a laser aim and a small backpack with ammunition, something to drink and a first aid kit backpack. You are aware that my knowledge about machine guns compares to my Japanese language skills, Charles said. Don't worry, we equipped you as an additional mule. We feel honored when you manage not to shoot us. Will do, Charles agreed. What's our status? All good, no casualties. Next stop, civilization. Morales pointed over to the roof of the nearest houses, about 200 yards out where the town started. As if to greet them, shots rang out in the distance. Chapter 50 Sina. In absence of a better plan, the army team turned the bus around and drove back into the town center, down Main Street to the commercial strip of closed shops and restaurants, except for one. They stopped in front of The Fork, a diner that announced food all day any day and had its come in and look out neon sign glowing red. The waitress smoked in front and Mac asked from the open door of the bus, Dinner for the army? Sure, the cook and I could use a little protection. It's a scary night with just a lady killer in my purse. She was a thin, wrinkled lady with a whitish complexion and tired eyes, anywhere between 40 and 60. Deal, Mac said. Sina parked the bus in the back of the building and everyone disembarked. They occupied two diner booths in the back as far away from the large windows as possible. Caspar and Ludowick closed the shades. Nothing worse, being a sitting duck in a town full of crazies, and the waitress shut off the neon invitation. Without streetlights, the dark town gave the vibes of a dangerous place. Few houses and shops gave light, but, in most cases, the owners had lowered the shades so that most of the street lay in deep shadows. The yellow blinking lights of a nearby pedestrian crossing were the only central light going, 
probably on a different circuit than the regular streetlights. They contemplated the hunger silently, nursing soft drinks until the burgers, tons of fries and steaks arrived. At first no one was keen on talking. The events of the day, the fight and flight, the death of the comrades and the uncertain fates of the survivors on their minds. Sina had to close her eyes and stop eating once in a while, holding back her welling tears with sheer willpower. After dinner, Sina collected herself and involved the waitress into some information gathering. Where is the owner? Brad's out on his ranch, protecting his family and the stock. He was apologetic about it, business versus home, tough choice. Even offered Miguel and myself to join him there, but we decided to stay. We have one shotgun and my little toy. Courageous could become a bad night. I don't want to work tomorrow too. I need this job and a random act of vandalism might cost me a week of pay. No help from the city? The mayor is forming a people's guard. You miss them by half an hour. But they won't be able to protect everyone. Not sure what the sheriff thinks about it. Most folks will remain in their homes, gun at the ready. The town is too spread out to be guarded properly. People's guards or deputies can't be everywhere at once. And the town is going to shit anyway. Last night we had a massacre at the bowling alley. Owner and staff all shot. The whole place shot to pieces, said the morning news before it stopped working. Then the sheriff told us about an ugly mass shooting up at Walnut Street. Some drug dealers fighting it out with that Nazi group from up north. The sheriff actually welcomed it. One problem less. She eyed the group. What's your story? We were assigned on an army convoy. Got attacked. Perhaps you saw the smoke out south. Those were our planes and troop transporters. The waitress shook her head. Man, what a day. Terrorists? Damned if we know. Mac admitted from his side of the room. They all wore regular clothes and did not appear like your typical radicals or terrorists, more like John and Jane Doe's who played militia, Sina added. Militia? The waitress wagged her head. Aren't they more the outdoor woodsy types? Not here in the desert. And then Sina remembered something else. One of them, their leader, was called Smitty. Name rings a bell? The waitress gave a quick laugh. Smitty? I know one. Pudgy-looking guy with few hairs. Looks like this Seema Hoffman actor who died a few years ago. Sina nodded, her heart beating faster from reliving the moment in the desert. Smitty? A terrorist? Impossible. The waitress shook her head. He's here three times a week for breakfast. Works at Legion Analytics, a high-tech company here in town. He's a murderous guy who tortured one of my men, Sina said. Your description is spot on. There can't be a second Smitty by that description. Get out. Smitty has a wife and two kids. He's a buyer something. Medium tipper, soda light, drives a beamer, lives close to the golf course. The waitress dumped her knowledge of the man. Sina automatically fished in her trousers for a smartphone to do some research but dropped it back into the pocket when she realized the internet and Google were out of reach. Is Legion Analytics far from here? Outskirts of town. Right on Main into Malcolm, then almost to the end, about two miles. 
the waitress explained. You can't miss it. Modernized factory building, old style brick and mortar. Huge parking lot in front. Cena and Mac looked at each other. Two miles is about 40 minutes walk. Quicker and safer if we borrowed a car, Cena said. Curiosity killed the cat, Mac replied. But we have a chance to find out what's going on, Cena pointed out. Remember, we need a plan. They were silent, contemplating, while Mac came up with a decision. Ludovic, who had switched guard duty to give Casper the opportunity to eat, too, called from the front window. Movement, Sarge. There's a small group approaching. Mac jumped up. Casper, take the back, he ordered, and hurried to Ludovic beside the diner door. Cena, who sat closest to the counter, reached behind it and cut the lights inside the diner and moved right behind Mac to get a better view. The others readied their weapons and vanished from view. The waitress hid in the kitchen. Indeed, five shadows moved along the sidelines of unlighted empty Main Street. The spacing between them looked somehow familiar and gave a military vibe. It was too dark to identify whether they were armed or not. Friend or foe? Ludovic asked. One way to find out. Mac opened the diner door, held out his Glock and fired once into the air. The reaction of the shadow people was instantaneous, each shadow diving into various covers behind parked cars or shop entrances in an organized method. Except for one thin dude who looked astonished left and right and then, with a delay of three seconds, also jumped behind the next car. Four soldiers and one civilian, Mac called out. Ludovic, cover me, shoot to kill. Sarge, I never thought I'd hear you say that, Ludovic muttered. Mac carefully opened the diner's front door, hesitantly walked out into, onto the pavement. Ludovic followed him and positioned himself inside the house entrance next door to control the street. Mac stepped out of the night shadow, aware that probably various guns were aimed at him. First Sergeant MacDonald, US Army Transport Battalion, identify yourself, he called out into Main Street towards where the shadows had melted away. There was a breath of a rustle beside him and two green berets emerged from the shadow of the building. They had gotten behind Mac and Ludovic in record time without them noticing. The Green Beret closest spoke up in a soft voice. Transport battalion, huh? Getting your gear stolen while the world ends? Green Berets, late to the party as usual, Mac gave back. Lieutenant Morales at your service. Good to see you alive, Sergeant. She made a circular motion with her index fingers and one by one the rest of her team melted from the shadows and stepped forward. Most of them clearly were special forces, muscles and equipment abound, but there was one lanky guy with glasses and a civilian haircut, a press velcro and a vaguely familiar silhouette. What about Major Bristol? Morales got down to her business right away. Cena had also followed Mac outside. He didn't make it. He and his team were eliminated in the first attack wave. Bristol was a sole survivor, injured. He helped us to get away, but she shook her head. Morales checked the neighborhood once more for bogies and bystanders, then pointed at the press man in the background. By the way, any complaints to file? This is the guy who got you into this mess, 
she introduced Charles. Hi, Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic and France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly. There are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other retailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, buy the book. And now let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 51 Charles Charles saw his fellow Greenberries stepping out of their covers, so he also lifted his head. He felt a bit embarrassed, like the kid who remained standing at a game of musical chairs. After Lieutenant Morales had given the go-ahead sign, he followed the group and approached a dark American diner with some army soldiers in front. He recognized the muscular round shape of Sergeant MacDonald, beside him the dark skin of Cena Washington, both looking a bit bedraggled and stressed out, but alive. No Bristol, though. Sergeants, Charles offered a hand. Good to see that you are alive. Mac's face darkened, but he shook the hand. Me too, but we lost too many already. The Ranger Patrol has been killed, all of them dead. Charles slowly ran his hand over his chin over his raspy beard stubbles. I have no words. This development was not predictable. Dr. Norman, they sent you where the action is? Sina seemed tired talking about the dead. I volunteered, believe it or not. Charles turned around and showed his press signage. That brought the expected quick guffaw from the transport team and took away some tension. Then let's offer the press and the green-capped slackers some dinner while we have a sit-rep. Mac turned and the group entered the diner. The room almost appeared crowded with the five newcomers. And it was now properly guarded with one green beret in front and one in the back, which gave Ludovic and Casper well-deserved rest time. Charles greeted the small group of survivors and the realization sunk in the tin can had turned into a war with real casualties against a mysterious enemy. The shock was still clearly written in the faces of the survivors. The waitress was happy to take more orders. 
You guys always make up what we lost due to today's outage. After she was gone, the remaining tin can transport crew led Charles and Morales through the events from the time of the attack, their retreat and the fight at the old gas station, including the gruesome discovery of the green slugs inside people and the unexpected help from the blonde cyber terminatrix. Encina demonstrated the gifted alien detection watch. Are we certain that these are aliens? Charles asked. He still hoped that the aliens were nowhere to be found and that there was no need for the president's final option. Cena shrugged. What do you want, Doc? Scientific proof? They are not from our planet, that much is clear. But whether they are the aliens, we don't know. They look like parasites. Perhaps a sort of bioweapon to support the real aliens? Mac nodded confirmation. Describe the effect of the electrical and electromagnetic disruptions, please. Charles changed topics. We were witnessing two effects. One catastrophic, total failure but of all electricity, battery-driven stuff like my Casio watch, big stuff like lights and motors, Sina explained. Followed by a lesser outage, radio transmission failure, like now, Basic ball plug electricity works, but no radio waves. Charles glanced outside. Okay, I get that. The streetlights are still out, but here inside we have electricity. Maybe the streetlights are controlled by some wireless network, Max suggested. And the regular household power still works and it's provided solely by wire. Charles felt silent, thinking, talking to himself. Sergeant Washington is right, the weapon has two settings, one strong mode that blocks everything and one soft mode that only blocks the radio waves. Sina slapped her forehead. And I can tell you the name of the weapon, I just remembered. Smitty, the enemy boss, mentioned it during my brief stint as a prisoner. The blanket, that's what he called it. That fits your description, Doc. The full blanket was his term. They had activated it fully for the initial attack to get rid of the helicopters and jets, Charles agreed. After the objective was done, they switched it to communication blanking. A fitting name. You don't believe it's that simple, right, Doc? Lieutenant Morales asked. The experience of our glider and the timing tells us otherwise. At a certain point, the pulling plane stopped working and we were on our mechanical aeronautic selves. Let's call it the short blanket, Charles proposed. You are right, there must be a parameter model involved, like a shell. On the outside, still hard, maybe a mile or two of full blanket behavior. Enough to stop your enemy from bringing in electrical dependent weapons. For the inner perimeter, the short blanket is working its magic, confusing the enemy inside as most modes of communication are disrupted, but you continue to operate. Mac pointed outside, and a highly civilized social structure broke down, simply because people are not able to call for the police anymore. Who are we up against? Charles asked. Is it some sort of sci-fi mind control thing? Body snatcher scenario? These green slime slugs with tentacles? Are they another weapon? Giant viruses? 
Where are the aliens hiding out? Our dead robot killer lady talked about sclones, Cena threw in. As if there was only one species involved. But surely these slimy things can't be the real deal. They are ugly and nothing. Well, cockroaches are also not the most appealing species. But they are probably more robust than the human race when it comes to the doomsday, Charles said. Or we are still missing something essential. No one could provide him with a better theory. Charles looked into the round of soldiers. All right, the best lead we seem to have is this company, Legion Analytics. I'd like to eyeball it. We we'll might even run into Tin Can again. Morales, you're with me. The rest of you chill out. Try to get some rest. The action will continue soon enough. Cena, Mac and the others nodded. Good plan, Morales threw in. Any other points, team? No one had anything to add. We need a ride. You guys hole up here and don't get killed. Sergeant Whitaker has the command. Morales reminded him in. Rules of engagement. Shoot to kill. We are on enemy territory. You see someone approaching, you shoot. I leave it up to you to warn aggressors, but don't compromise security of our temporary HQ. The mission has priority. Get Tin Can back. Idly, use single shot, because we came with limited supplies. If it is multiple people approaching and one acts up, you shoot all, one after another, and don't stop until they are all down or gone. No pussyfooting. The Green Berets did not seem to have a problem with this approach, but the transport crew looked doubtful. Isn't that a bit extreme? Mac asked. You saw your alien-infected colleagues, Charles said. How do we know that many more in this town are not possessed by the green slime slugs? They might attack coordinated as everyday people, just like in the desert. The lieutenant is right. We trust no one. He waved towards the waitress, who looked through the bull-eye from the kitchen. Can we borrow your ride? This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far, and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.aims.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexameswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, 
over and out.